This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. I'm going to go ahead and just introduce you, Don, at this point. For many of the people at ACC, many people already know Don because Don has been coming uh, as a visiting teacher for a number of years now uh, and has co-led workshops with me in the past here at ACC and, um, and has just come on her own to help lead retreats and workshops and just to give Dharma talks. So um, Dawn and I, just for reference, we knew each other before either of us were practicing Buddhism. And we ended up going into different paths, similar but different paths. Early on, Dawn went into a Vipassana path and I was in a Zen path. And we didn't actually, we, we kind of lost touch for a while while we went off on our separate paths. And then we came back together and we're like, wow, what have you been up to? You've been living in a monastery for like the last five years. Oh, you've been like traveling in Burma. You know, so... So we, you know, a lot of our, our friendship was built before practice, but then once you add practice to that mix, you can imagine that we had no shortage of uh, things to talk about, <laughs> practices to take on together. Uh, Dawn has studied primarily with a number of Vipassana teachers, but also Zen teachers like Darlene Cohen and Paul Haller. And, um, but I guess most, most recently, Don has practiced under Gil Fronsdale, whom many of you know or have been listening to his, his talks, and has been part of uh, numerous Vipassana and insight meditation groups within the Bay Area, but has, a, has, has done her Zen, you know, Zen forays as well. So without any further ado, I would like to welcome Don back to AZC for a Dharma talk today, and uh, just hoping that we can be in person, you know, when we, when we reopen and we're able to be in person, it'll be really great to welcome you back in the flesh as well as over in your little Hollywood square. So yes, welcome Don. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Mako. And before we start, I just have to mention that Mako is being a little bit modest. Um, she, in fact, was the first person to help me link some of the spirituality I was exploring to Buddhism and is directly responsible for me entering the path in a more serious way. So I bow to you for that. Thank you, dear friend. So greetings, everyone. Um, please um, put your thumbs up or something if you can hear me all right. I'm on a new mic. Great. Okay. So um, as you might imagine, given the introduction, I'm here this morning to talk about teachings from the Theravada tradition. And as some of you probably are well aware, the word Theravada itself translates to way of the elders. And much of the tradition's focus is on an individual's path of practice. It draws on a compilation of the Buddha's teachings as preserved in the Pali Canon. It was one of a number of schools in ancient India, but it's the only one in which the vast majority of the teachings were written down and are still available. And the teachings are primarily in this compilation concerned with awakening. There are, though, a lot of teachings in the text as well that concern interpersonal 
sorts of things, how a person shows up in relationship, the behavior of groups, and even some broader social and societal concerns. And that's what I'm going to talk about today is a few of that set of teachings. And one of the reasons for this is that during the last election cycle, 2016, I was researching the Buddha's teachings about the causes and conditions of strife and discord and difficulty in society for my master's thesis in Buddhist studies. And it was a dark time to be doing that, or so I thought at the time. And now as things are coming to a head in our society, those of you here on the break sort of heard us talking about some of that, those teachings have been very much on my mind. And I turned back to my old research and kind of drew on it because I'd like to offer some of them out in the world right now, along with some perspectives on how they might inform our practice and help us to hold some of this. So the first thing to say is a little bit of historical context. The Buddha also lived in a time of great societal shifts and upheaval. There were warring factions um, between kings, between different factions in city-states or proto-countries, and just a lot of unrest, instability. There's a sutta um, called the Atadanda Sutta, the Discourse on Being Violent, that offers a really kind of rare personal glimpse on his perspective of what was happening around him. So I'm just going to read it. This is my translation, but it owes a lot to Gil Fronstel and Bhikkhu Bodhi. It reads, fear is born from violence. Just look at people in their strife. I will explain my agitation in light of what I realized. Seeing a generation thrash like fish in drying water, I saw people in their enmity, and I dwelled in dread. Everywhere the world lacks substance. All directions are pervaded with change. Longing for a dwelling of my own, I saw nothing not already taken. I felt discontent at seeing, solely enmity to the very end. Then I saw a hidden arrow rooted in the heart. When pierced by this arrow, people run round in all directions. When that arrow's pulled out, they don't run and they don't sink. So in the Pali, that's actually in verse, but it's kind of impossible to translate meter and rhyme across two and a half millennia. Part of what moves me about this passage is that in this verse, the Buddha is observing the thrashing, the enmity, the strife, the suffering of others, and then talks about feeling the resulting suffering in himself quite directly. This interpersonal scope of his concern, this observation of cause and effect, conditionality, weaves through many of the ancient teachings, not just on liberation, but also on interpersonal and societal difficulty. 
In this verse, the Buddha notices the effect of people's behavior and observed mind states on his own heart and mind, and the societal mood fills him with dread. Not unlike the dread some of us experience in the face of escalating brutality, social strife, pandemic, divisive rhetoric today. And it's then that the Buddha turns inward and finds this hidden arrow. And we know from other accounts that he becomes liberated. He pulls his own arrow out first. This verse only implies that, but it does show that he observes the difference between people impacted by the arrow and people free. And he then spends the rest of his life, dedicates the rest of his life teaching others to pull out the arrow of craving, suffering, delusion. So like other teachings addressing interpersonal and societal issues, this passage includes his observation of the self, of others, of self and others, and of the broader world, the societal milieu. In these earliest teachings in the Pali Canon, this is kind of a theme. You see it in the Satipatthana Sutta and a very kind of abstract meditation um, instruction kind of way, where it's talking about internal and external and the refrain. But throughout the Pali Canon, considering what's beneficial for oneself, for others in the world, appears over and over as a hallmark of wisdom. And I'm just going to quote one of them. This comes from the Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses. A wise person of great wisdom plans for their own welfare, the welfare of others, the welfare of both, and the welfare of the whole world. This is contrasted with what the Buddha quite bluntly calls a fool who plans for and engages in activity for the affliction of self, the affliction of other, the affliction of both, and the affliction of the world. One um, way of parsing the word vipassana is of making distinctions. So there are many distinctions like this. One area of social and interpersonal concern that the Buddha addressed in this sense of addressing the broader welfare was the early caste system in ancient India. And contrary to popular belief, he did not address this or other social concerns by reforming the broader society directly. He lived, as I mentioned, in this tumultuous time and instigating social reform was simply not an option for a spiritual teacher at that point. Nonetheless, he addressed the caste system quite directly in his own way. And there were two broad ways of doing that, um, which I'll talk about in a moment. But first, just to say by that point in history, the caste system was forming. It had not formed to the level of sort of subtle social gradations that still inform Indian society today but it was a powerful force. It ranked people's importance and it defined them based on skin color, 
livelihood and kind of possibilities for their lives and their families' lives. It's strikingly similar to our own current systemic racism, except it was more overt and it was more codified. As Isabel Wilkerson notes in her book, Cast the Origins of Our Discontent, cast is the bones, race is the skin. The Buddha took the notion of caste superiority in our paradigm racial superiority and he turned it on its head. First, he addressed the caste system in his own sphere of influence, his monastic order. And he did that by refusing to grant respect, position, or power to people based on arbitrary physical distinctions, wealth, or hereditary caste. Instead, people were recognized in the order based on their actions, including their ethical development, their depth of practice, their wisdom, and their compassion. Respect was earned. In his teachings and in his community by how a person is and how they act. So a number of his teachings also directly address this. And I'm going to talk about one today called the Vasetha Sutta. And it's named after one of the two young Brahmin men, adolescents really, who came to the Buddha and, um, over an argument. And for me, this sutta directly addresses the delusions that underpin caste and racial superiority. And as a white woman, it also functions as a teaching about privilege because these two young men were Brahmins, the most privileged caste of their time. And they're having, the form of this argument is one of those philosophical discussions that students in adolescence have had, well, clearly for millennia at least, right? These, this, you know, those kind of fun arguments you get into in high school or college or wherever. And the form that they were arguing was, does a Brahmin, in other words, do we become a Brahmin at birth or by our actions? Well, they happened to be studying with a bunch of famous Brahmin teachers who just happened to be in the same town for basically an ancient convention as the Buddha. Okay, so like, let's go check this guy out and see if he can answer a question. I'm obviously paraphrasing here. <laughs> And the Buddha responds with a teaching that undercuts the validity of privilege granted by birth entirely. And the teaching starts by, and I'm quoting here using a couple of different translators, Bhikkhu Bodhi and Tanisaro. The, the Buddha says, he acknowledges the generic divisions of living beings by their kinds of birth in the natural world. Moths, butterflies, other insects, quadrupeds, snakes, fish, and birds have, the Buddha says, distinguishing markings made by nature. In other words, they have species differentiation. The Buddha goes on to say that among people, no differences of birth apply. They don't distinguish them 
but I want to really call out, he's not colorblind the way some meaning, well-meaning contemporary white people are, the way I was taught to be growing up. Quite to the contrary, he talks about these physical differences among people and enumerates them very specifically. And I'm not going to read from the list because it's quite long. But among these differences are gender characteristics, sexual orientation, and skin color. And the Buddha underscores while he's reading these off that they are not valid ways of ranking. That classifying human beings based on these distinctions is purely verbal designation. In other words, it's a social construct. And he undercuts that social construct even as he's naming it. Rather, he states, and this is very much a theme for him, we humans can be understood, distinguished by what we do, by how we are in our hearts. And I'll say more about this in a minute, but first I want to underscore that this teaching and my interpretation of it, because these things are always interpreted, right? It should not in any way imply that socially constructed verbal racial designations aren't harmful. They clearly are. And we are discovering that more and more recently, right? Many people in our country have known for generations that systemic racism and overt racism are harmful. But this current time, many more are discovering it, have discovered it, right? And for some of us, recent events have made the brutality and the pervasiveness of the system even clearer, even if we already knew about it. The recent murders of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Dijon Kazee, and too many others, sadly to name, really give stark examples of the harm perpetrated this way, and as does the recent shooting of Jacob Blake, right? The human cost of devaluing some people's lives based on this arbitrary designation of skin color is just staggering. So systemic racism, like the Indian caste system, has been intentionally and unknowingly perpetrated over centuries and it's shaping, scarring our very society itself. The Buddha in his teachings was, and I'm quoting here from one of the commentaries, directly rejecting the doctrine of class determination by birth and advancing the doctrine of action. In his teaching to Visetha and Visetha's buddy, he starts by describing how people can be distinguished by actions in the world, from farming and craft making, to robbery, to ruling. He then describes speech acts as actions, and then the subtlest actions of all, emotions, thoughts, impulses, opinions, responses in our hearts and minds. And the Buddha lifts up 
inner qualities in particular as worthy of respect rather than hereditary privilege. Some of these inner qualities include virtue, humility, restraint, wisdom, clarity, compassion. He emphasizes dropping conceit, contempt, hatred. I like to imagine the Buddha's descriptions of a spiritually mature person in this way to be the first invitation these two young privileged men ever received to examine their own inner lives this way, right? They step out of their school, they talk to someone new. There you have it. We'll also say that for me, compassionate observation of the presence or absence of these qualities in my inner life, in my heart, is really supportive in exploring my own white privilege today and how I fit in to the systemic racism that we all inherited, whether we wanted to or not. The Buddha's paradigm privileges spiritual development, ethical behavior, and compassion rather than these physical differences or even social status. And from the perspective now, a helpful way to interpret these actions is that while the Buddha never heard of white privilege, and he certainly wasn't white, he used his privilege, his stature, and his sphere of influence to free others and to address this concern. And he reframes this particular kind of social status and caste or class issue over and over in the teachings. It is a theme, it's not just in this one teaching. Again and again and again. It's one of the main tropes he uses as a teacher, particularly when talking to people outside of his tradition. So I believe that the current times call each of us, particularly those of us who are privileged in any way, to also bring systemic racism and other social concerns into our scope of practice, our engagement. For him, it was teaching and leading, you know, this subculture. It's going to look different for us. Unlike us, the Buddha didn't live in a democracy. That said, the Pali Canon does record a number of examples in which the Buddha tried to or acted as a spiritual advisor to monarchs in North India, and not just the monarchs he agreed with. Some pretty unsavory characters would come to him for advice, actually. Agreeing with them or not, he tried to interject a wisdom perspective into those leaders' actions. Advising, though, it wasn't the only way that the Buddha offered advice to leaders or addressed the social ills of his day. He also used what I and a lot of other scholar practitioners or lay teachers considered to be morality fables or myths in his teaching, teaching stories. And he used these to critique the social order obliquely. That is because in ancient India, Presenting social commentary through fables, often presented as if they were ancient history, was probably necessary. As Gil Fronstel mentioned in a talk in late August, 
on social justice. It wasn't actually physically safe for spiritual leaders or anyone else to make public political commentary that might anger kings. Some kings were wise and kind, and others were absolute despots who could and did kill people at a whim in a variety of gruesome ways. So a wise or long-lived spiritual teacher couched political critique in myth, fable, allegory. One of these myths is entitled The Lion's Roar of the Wheel-Turning King. And it's in the long discourses. I'm happy to give a reference afterwards to anyone who wants it. And I'm going to read a sort of synopsis of this in brief. Long discourses are indeed quite long. So I'm summarizing here. Once upon a time, society was ruled by a series of wise and virtuous wheel-turning kings. The reigns were long and society was peaceful and the people prospered. Lifespans were especially long, 80,000 years and healthy. The the first wheel-turning king, Dalmany, established the security of his realm by attending to what led to long-term welfare and happiness and ensuring the prosperity and ethical guidance of his people. He followed the duty of a wheel-turning monarch, which is, and I'm quoting here, depending on justice, honoring it, revering it, cherishing it, having it as your badge and banner, Acknowledging Dharma as your master, you should establish, guard, ward, and protect, according to justice, your own household, troops, inner circle, military, Brahmins and householders, town and country folk, ascetics, beasts, and birds. In other words, for the sake of justice itself, Using the ethics of the Dharma as a guide, a virtuous king guards and protects everyone, not just his inner circle and administration, not just the military, but also villagers, merchants, religious people of all kinds, spiritual folks, and animals and the environment. A crucial part of that duty is spelled out as to let no prime prevail and to those who are in need, give property. And then the last piece of advice is, a king is to consult with the wise, avoiding evil, doing what is good. So Dalamani did all of this. And as a wheel-turning king, he then came into possession of several magical treasures including a wheel treasure, which, and this is really the fairy tale part, lived in the sky rotating above the castle, visible to all. This was a symbol of his close relationship with the Dharma. Each of these wheel-turning kings, it was said, and there were seven, conquered neighboring territories without weapons with the aid of this magical wheel treasure which accompanied them in conquest. And because of its power, the power of the turning wheel of the Dharma, there was no need for violence. 
coercion. Instead, the kings conquered by their goodness, ethical behavior, and guidance, teaching the five lay precepts wherever they went, which the people immediately accepted. They then ruled generously and kindly because, as you may have picked up on by now, the wheel-turning king was kind of an enlightened ruler. Near the end of each one's long life, reign, they would pass the crown to their heir and encourage them also to rule in accordance with justice, to follow the Dharma, and to follow the advice of the wise ministers in the land. And then the departing king would leave and enter a monastic order and go do spiritual practice for the rest of their life. Nice retirement. Within seven days of this transfer of power, though, the heir would find that the wheel treasure disappears from the sky. And each heir, the first one learned, would need to actually earn this virtue and this power by following the duties I spelled out earlier, especially letting no crime prevail, giving to those in need and consulting with wise people. So the fable tells of seven generations of these enlightened rulers, one after another. And then it recounts the story of the unfortunate eighth. There's always an unfortunate eighth in these stories, right? So this person, after receiving the crown from his father, instead of consulting wise ministers and ruling in accord with justice, settled law, this eighth king ruled according to his own ideas, his own whims. He provided protection and guarding to the country, but he did not take care of the poor and needy. And eventually, someone stole. The king, he was brought before the king, and the king asked, why did you do this? And the person explained, that he was hungry, that his family was hungry, he had no way to provide for them, and he stole food so that they would not starve. Well, the king heard that and moved. He offered the person property and livestock so that he might have a way to provide for his family. Well, you can guess what happens in an impoverished society when the poor find out that one person stole went before the king and was then granted what he needed. Stealing became widespread, rife, very quickly. And a second person and a third person came before the king and the king gave and gave. And then the thought occurred to him without, I might add, consulting with anyone wise, that this has to stop. So without telling anyone he had changed his mind, when the next person came before him and freely admitted to stealing, fully expecting to receive generosity, he was instead put to death. Well, so this king used capital punishment instead of providing relief to the causes of poverty. And at that point, people started, kept stealing, but instead of stealing and allowing people to know that they had stolen, they committed murderous robbery instead. 
no witnesses. Besides, killing must be okay. The king just did it. It was that kind of logic that the fable describes. So the use of weapons, incidents of murder dramatically increased and lifespans in this fable began to decrease. Lying began to cover up unsavory actions and lifespans decreased even more. Then things in this story really bottomed out. Divisive speech became common, as did sexual misconduct, harsh speech, gossip, and false opinions. That part sounds a little familiar to me. Through all of this, the lifespan of the people continued to plummet and lack of respect for family became rife. Deviant practices, lack of respect for any kinds of authority, including religious leaders, civic leaders, and everyone else. Fine foods, spices, and flavors began to disappear, and coarse grains, rice and beans of their day, were the norm. Eventually, moral conduct disappeared and evil prevailed. The lifespan of people dropped to 10 years, and among those unfortunate people, even the word for ethics was forgotten. So the fable says at this point, just as it is now that people who show respect for mother and father, ascetics and Brahmins, for the head of clan, that those people are praised and honored, so then it became for those who do the opposite. Those with no respect were lionized. When this happened, the people became fierce with enmity, promiscuous even with blood relatives, and society eventually degraded to what was called a sword interval of seven days, a street war, in which people regarded each other as wild beasts. It was complete dehumanization of the other. The fable goes on to describe fierce enmity prevailing among all, one against another, fierce hatred, fierce anger and thoughts of killing, parent against child, child against parent, sibling against sibling. Just as the hunter feels hatred for the beast he stalks, these people began to take each other's lives. In other words, it was societal insanity, total breakdown of the social order. During these darkest of times, some good people stepped away from this fray and practicing non-harming, they hid in the forests and caves from the worst of the street war. Some were meditating and contemplating in the woods, others just hiding in fear. And at the end of that time, these people emerged finding each other, rejoicing when seeing each other and saying, I'm quoting here, good beings, I see that you're alive. I see that you're alive. And the thought occurred to them, it is only because we became addicted to evil ways that we suffered all of this loss. So let us now do good. In other words, they banded together to create a community ethic of doing good. It's an ethic that's often associated in these ancient teachings with compassion and laying aside of violence. 
and in the very symmetrical way these ancient myths work, society then began to regenerate, being based on this wholesome conduct and practice as seeds of goodness. So some basic precepts began to get followed, refraining from stealing, sexual misconduct, etc. Refraining from feeding and acting on hostility and hatred, covetousness, and instead cultivating wisdom, virtuous action. Lifespans increase, beauty increases, happiness increases, wealth increases, and generation by generation, the lifespans go back up to 20,000, 40,000, 80,000 years. And out of that healthy, thriving society, a new wheel-turning king arises. So that's the myth. That's the Buddha's indirect advice to leaders. And I'm going to spend a little while unpacking what this 2,600-year-old morality fable might have to offer us and how the Buddha framed it in his time. I'll start by just mentioning the advice the Buddha gave implicitly to lay people, which was right at the end there, where it talks about people banding together, creating a community ethic of goodness, committing to compassion, nonviolence with each other. And then, so that's woven in, right? Woven into the myth itself. At the end of the discourse, though, after the myth, the Buddha also directly addresses serious practitioners, which in his time were monastics. In our time, of course, there are many serious practitioners who are not monastics. So I think some of this advice could apply equally well to us. The first advice the Buddha gives to practitioners is to keep practicing. Take refuge in your own practice. It is both wellspring and refuge, and it is also protection in these difficult times. The second piece of advice is to look to your own gochare. Gochare is a Pali word that literally translates as cow field, but like the word field in English, it, it evolved in the same way. So it also means vocation sphere of influence, area. Look to your own field. Take care of your own sphere of influence. From that, I take the question, can each of us look to and take care of our own field? First and foremost, can we live and act as examples, showing up ethically in our vocation, our avocation, relationships, interactions, community? wherever our life intersects with the world. Any sphere of influence are perfect places for those of us who are white to learn about and acknowledge privilege, to learn more about racism. For some people, this may mean study. For others, it may mean calling out racism, hate speech, or what the Buddha called false opinions when we hear them with honesty and compassion. In formal practice, the Buddha also recommends cultivating loving kindness or benevolence, 
compassion, altruistic joy and equanimity. As the quote goes, abundant, exalted and immeasurable without hatred or ill will. He presents this as a way of building wealth, inner wealth, inner resources. And in times like these, and in times like those, cultivating these vital internal states can be deeply nourishing. It's a way of filling up the wellspring and it can be really supportive of whatever kind of engagement or even just coping there is to be had in one's life. He also focuses, of course, as do almost all of the early texts on liberation itself for practitioners, including by saying monks, I do not consider any power so hard to conquer as the power of Mara, the power of evil, death. Mara is, as many of you probably know, kind of devil figure. He ranges from capricious to outright evil, depending on the discourse. And the Buddha is basically adding that it is by building up of wholesome states like this kindness, compassion, joy, that is the power to resist or defeat Mara. That is how it increases. So in my mind, this applies to relational and societal states, as well as personal ones. Just like banding together was advice to the lay people, so too we have the opportunity to increase collective possibility for wholesome states in daily life, whatever our field of influence. So we can choose to do our best to positively influence relational community or collective moods or states, one moment at a time, one place at a time, one relationship at a time. The efforts to do this, to cultivate wholesome states, are known as the four great efforts. And perhaps you've encountered them before, I don't know, but um, the translation that I'm summarizing names them as first, restraint. Restraint prevents the arising or the increasing of unwholesome states, hatred, ill will, covetousness, contempt, that have already arisen. The second is, if you notice an unwholesome state is already romping around your heart or the room, is abandonment. To abandon it, don't feed it. Don't nurse the grudge, so to speak. It's not buying in to greed, hatred, or delusion. Not increasing it with my words or my actions. And the second two have to do with wholesome states. Desire for wholesome states actually helps them grow. Development of them through attending to them, noticing them, watering them like you would a plant. And this can include benevolence, compassion, joy, or simply truth-telling, generosity, respect, forgiveness. The fourth great effort is protection, to protect or maintain 
and increase whatever wholesome states might already be there in my heart or in the room, within us or between us. So this teaching suggests that practicing in this way helps to reinforce the good and allow the bad to wither. <clears throat> Allowing each heart to express imperfectly, and it will be imperfect most of the time, but with that vow, that intention of practice. For me, this takes the form of nourishing a sense of common humanity and belonging underneath opinions, underneath the fears, underneath the reactivity. Nourishing that human connection while also holding each other mutually accountable, compassionately accountable for unskillful words and actions. This is not easy. I'm not going to lie about that. You probably know that already. You'll find your own version of whatever might work for you. I've found this kind of action through the chaplaincy work that I do to be one of the most powerful forms of maturing my practice particularly if I reflect on it before and afterwards. It's a resolve I've taken, an aditana, a vow. And it benefits my practice at the expense of sort of a more transient kind of peace that comes from shying away. So, wholesome states can also include not only the psychological or collective mood, states, but geographic states as well. The very next myth or fable in the compilation that I've been teaching from is a creation story of Buddhist society. And in that story called On Knowledge of Beginnings, the people are living in loose affiliation, literally um, like light and luminous and eating the earth offers everything they need and there's harmony there's never any kind of even rub right it's sort of an eden-like situation and things start get confusing start to get confusing and eventually crime begins well the people 2600 years ago banded together to elect a trusted member of their community to be their very first political leader. I find this mind-blowing, actually, an election that early. It is in myth, but the idea was there. We, too, have the opportunity to band together and to do our very best to make sure that the next set of leaders in our society bring the possibility of more wisdom experience and peace to this land, to this state. We're incredibly fortunate that unlike the historical Buddha, our elected officials are not monarchs. We have the power to use our voices, our hearts, our actions as citizens to interject wisdom into the democratic process at every level. We can vote, we can get involved, we can engage and support goodness across the political and social spectrum. 
whether our efforts show obvious benefits right away or not, just like in this myth, just like in the whole notion of conditionality, the positive beneficial seeds get planted, perhaps to ripen immediately or to bear wholesome fruit much later or both. The Buddha's teachings is that, say that our actions matter. As he said to these two young Brahmin men, Vasetha and his buddy, in teaching them, so that is how the truly wise see action as it really is, as interdependent conditions. The wise are skilled in action and its results. Action makes the world go round. Action makes this generation turn. Living beings are bound by their actions, like the chariot wheel by the linchpin. So, to very briefly recap, some of the Buddha's suggestions to societal conflict, which I interpret through the lens of practicing for the benefit of self, other, and the world, are liberate your heart as much as you can. Offer a wholesome example when you can. Cultivate wholesome states. Band together. Create a community ethic based on compassion, generosity, restraint. And hold people accountable through elected leaders. He really suggests that we put an effort of will towards shifting our consciousness, individual, relational, and collective. Thank you for your kind attention. If anyone has questions, comments, complaints, or just reflections, I'm very happy to be in community conversation with you about this. I can't see all of your hands, so I encourage you, if you want to speak, to just unmute yourself and take a chance. Dave Petrzynski, um, and a question for you. Sure. As you were talking, before you got to the Eight King story, <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. I started having the thought that, um, and it's more a tribal thought, uh, I think, a way of of tribalism, and that is um, even have even uh, discriminating or focusing on actions is can become a form of privilege, which is sort of what happened with perhaps the seven kings as they as they developed over time, and how we divide ourselves um, into into tribes uh, is kind of arbitrary. And so that sense of uh, how did we just divide ourselves to become these, this set of virtuous people and then there's rabble beneath us is sort of where the, and, and I think a, 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 form, a 
privilege form is sort of a fundamentalism that says, hey, this group of us, however we identify, are privileged. And this group that's, you know, we don't see it at them as being in despair and anger because they can't act and they can't act with compassion and, um, and wisdom because they can't see it yet. Um, they're being held down. Um, you can still arbitrarily end up in a system that's just as much a caste system as you had before. It's just arbitrarily different now. And I think what you did at the end with the eighth king is illustrated how that happened. And then the remedy is still um, to go back to kindness and compassion and then the realization that we're all interconnected and the same. And I think you tied it together nicely. And I just, I think, it, it built up and then you released all the tension that I had listening. So thank you. Thanks so much, David. And I appreciate your comment about the um, actions and the judgments of why people might be engaging in actions, for example, stealing for food or looting a target, right? It's very easy for anything to be used to polarize and tribalize and um, there's no simple answer, right? The, as you so beautifully said, the interconnection between us all is one of the key, to me, one of the key understandings that helps put myself in the position of someone who might be operating under tremendous pressure, fear, delusion, um, that dropping beneath to the level of the common humanity is the only thing I've been able to find that for myself allows me to even stay in dialogue with some people right now. So, thank you. Yes, Anne. So one of the things that I've been struggling with is how to determine when I'm compassionately holding people accountable. And maybe you can talk a little bit about how you do that. <laughs> yeah, it's not an easy one, right? Um, so I'm, I'm going to quote Brene Brown, and I wish I could remember which of her books this comes from, but I think it might be the most recent, where um, she talks about coming from a place of understanding that other people are doing the best they can given the conditions of their lives and their own upbringing etc and that for me is a very kind of beautiful and secular way to put the perspective that um, compassionate accountability comes with which is first understanding that whatever happened, it did not happen in isolation. It is not a flower in the air, right? Conditions built up. I can have extraordinary compassion for someone. And as she says, um, sometimes what that means is that for the person's own good and the good of everyone around them, they need to be locked up. The action, the accountability, doesn't necessarily need to change. It might change. However, the understanding that it's based on isn't necessarily purely punitive. This is not a revenge motivation. It is the motivation to preserve life, 
to preserve health for all involved as much as possible and to remedy whatever underlying conditions or at least understand them that came into being. Um, and I have been in conversation with some very, very difficult people. And for me, that kind of understanding is what gives me the strength and patience to stay engaged. Um, it doesn't mean I'm not going to call them out. It doesn't mean I'm not going to um, allow them to experience the karmic results of their actions and even encourage that. But it does mean that I don't, in my better moments, and I don't always have my better moments, I will engage with them in a way that reflects that understanding of where they're coming from. Thank you for the question. I'm sure other people have equally um, pertinent or perhaps wiser things to say on this topic. Thank you. Mary, please. So first, I want to thank you for your um, very, really uh, uh, lovely, organized presentation that sort of laid things out in a, um, it, I mean, I, it was so nicely organized and, and so nicely uh, coordinated your talk, the stream flowing through was, um, it was it, the thread through thread or stream, whatever, it was um, really, uh, instructional and pleasantly instructional and enlighteningly instructional to follow. So thank you, I bow, thank you with you know, deep gratitude for your presentation. Um, so that was the first thing. Um, the second is um, I, I, the comment, I, I'm commenting on your talk and reflect in subsequent to a conversation I had with my older sister, who is a um, Methodist church minister, mm -hmm. and um, in her church and her uh, meetings, one of the topics that it, they are um, wrestling with is the, is the topic of ignorance. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it sort of goes hand in hand with doing the best they can is that many people are doing the best they can on a background of not of, of kind of um there's a background of ignorance of not understanding what interdependence really means and not understanding that if people are getting ill in china because we are all interdependent, we become ill in the rest of the world. And that the, the welfare and the, the health of the nations is dependent upon us, our understanding and taking care of the most um, vulnerable, from the ground up. So instead of looking at care and compassion, so often um, 
from uh, uh, a limited perspective to try to uh, educate ourselves and open our eyes, open up all of our spectrums of ignorance and look at from the ground up, how can we um, provide this compassionate care uh, and the, you know, I mean, it's like everything else, the people are taught that other people are bad or other people are stupid or venal or cruel. People are taught that as children and they carry that through into adulthood and then they teach that to their children. So it's kind of like looking at how we can approach under the understanding of actions through um, dialogue with ignorance and also understanding that we want more compassionate ways to sequester those who would do others harm away. We want to actually try to figure out how to be even compassionate in that way. So thank you though. Thank you so much, Mary. It, what you just said was so beautifully said. And um, I just would like to receive it. And, and the wisdom of the conversation that you were having, it was with your sister, right? Yes. 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 Yeah. Um, what comes up for me as you say it is also this idea that's in that myth about planting seeds. It's like, this is a generational issue. You know, it's many things, but of um, planting the seeds now that the next generation is not raised with the same level of ignorance and harmful delusions and not being taught in a way that closes down a care and concern for everyone in society. That ignorance that somehow um, I can be well off when people are starving in this country. Right? It's just, it's, it's staggering. Um, if nothing else, short of interdependence, one would hope enlightened self-interest would prevail that like, it just doesn't work on a society level. And we can, I hope that we can work towards a society in which the understanding of both our interdependence and our common humanity becomes the motivating force. Um, yes, Mako. Thank you first for your beautiful talk and for, um, yeah, bringing it back to the, the elders. Thank you very much for that. I wanted to bring up a sort of in the same line as what other people have mentioned. There was a time when I was um, living in San Francisco I had a, when I had a, you know, I was driving my car and I had a bumper sticker on my car that said, hate is not a family value. And strangely enough, you know, I, I thought this was pretty straightforward. <laughs> But somebody took issue and said, what are you talking about? I mean, just in the parking lot. 
saw me, saw the car and, and took issue with the bumper sticker and, and basically argued that, of course, hate is a family value. How can I protect my family? How can I protect my children or raise my children if I don't teach them to hate undesirable elements? <laughs> that was, I mean, yeah, right? So, so given that, if, if this is, um, you know, I don't think, I, I was astounded by, by hearing this, of course, but as, um, you know, this is 20 years ago now, maybe even longer. But where we are now, it seems pretty clear that hate is being uh, raised up as a family value. And how to, um, you know, in finding common ground, and with this question I think Mary was getting at in terms of, um, you know, many, many people are never exposed to um, wisdom teachings, for example. Um, how, how to, I, I don't know if, how, how to formulate my question to you, but in, in light of these teachings, I think, I think what you said was being, um, you know, taking care of your sphere, right, of influence, you know, and, and that includes, you know, day-to-day -day ordinary interactions with just random people and how to, how to baseline with respect and um, respect for common humanity. But beyond that, in taking care of our society, beyond just voting, right? I mean, I, you did mention getting, uh, getting involved on every level, right? Um, how, do you, how do you counter or understand a perspective that comes from the perspective of um, of hate. I, th I think of that as being as coming from a very fear based perspective. And so, how to um, address fears? I think that that's got to be a baseline of where we start, right? If somebody's afraid, they're not going to be open. Their frontal lobe isn't even going to necessarily be fully functioning. <laughs> So, like, how to how to um, address the fear first and foremost, because then maybe dialogue can happen. So, I'm wondering if you have uh, what you may have uh, to offer on that. Thank you for the question and the wisdom that preceded it. I think, in a lot of ways, um, it's it's a thorny question. I'm going to offer my perspective and just say that there are people I have heard about who specialize in um, deprogramming people who have been programmed to hate, like more extreme examples of that. And I wish I could remember, I think Picarino is the last name of one of them. Um, he's a male survivor of a radical, I think it's a radical right hate group but it's definitely a hate group. And he is dedicating his life now to reaching out to young men who are at risk or already involved and walking them, like engaging with them and dialoguing with them and walking them back out of that perspective. But I've heard him and another gentleman speak, a man who was heavily involved in gangs. Um, both of these were on the radio, not in person. And there are 
a couple of things, and both of them sound so counterintuitive, but one of them is, of course, as you suggested, you're listening to the fear. But fundamentally, um, empathizing, empathizing completely, utterly, and totally with the emotions is that's the jujitsu move. Like, that's the power move. Because, um, and it has to, here's the trick though, and this is why it's not easy, it has to be real. People's bullshit meter when they're threatened is, you know, out the roof. I have spent a lot of time attempting to learn, and in some cases successfully, how to completely and utterly empathize with an emotion while maintaining my own internal and external boundaries with disagreeing with the position that the thought construct has come to that sits on top of the emotion. And, and until someone feels heard, they will not listen, especially in that state. So it isn't easy. It's, um, it requires an astounding level of um, self-knowledge, restraint, and deeply held empathy and compassion to even stay engaged with someone in that state, right? But when you see people do it who do it well, it is really astounding to watch. And I've had the privilege of being able to pull this off a few times in chaplaincy, and the turnaround can be absolutely complete in terms of the threat mode, the shutdown mode is no longer operable. The person becomes open and they might not change their mind about a hate position in the moment, but forming that relationship can be transformative in the sense that there then is trust that something different can work. So it's, as a friend of mine says, baby steps, right? Um, so that is a, a way of dealing in the moment, and that takes a ton of practice and doing your own work and practicing this under fire and sometimes getting it wrong. I'll just say that. The second thing that the experts talk about, um, these two gentlemen who've survived and then turned back around to try to um, deconstruct these forces, is... Um, the forces of hatred that are very intentionally in our society, and I'm making a distinction here between maybe sadly generational and family structures that are unintentionally doing it and people who are actually intentionally spreading. Um, they are preying on a sense of lack of belonging. That is what they're preying on. So to the extent that there can be some sense of, and this is a tricky situation, you don't want to invite, you know, heat spewing violent people into your social circle or your work or your sangha, but to the extent there can be a sense of belonging cultivated with something other than the views that are seducing them, is it's just a very powerful counteracting force. So um, much easier to do prevention than to go in and 
shift after a person has already become very influenced. But um, I have seen people who given an alternative for a healthy sense of belonging, they'll take it, right? So um, those are two. I really wish, um, sort of back to, to Mary's point and question as well, like um, I wish and hope for ways that we can counteract the generational taught hatred in addition to these other ways. Um, what I've seen for myself having been born and raised in the South is exposure to people not like oneself is super helpful. Um, and that is down to the education system. Yes, um, Margarita's gentleman. <laughs> you need to unmute. I still can't hear you. Sorry. Hi. I was just going to add further to your last point. Um, a story that um, might be relevant is uh, uh, the story of the African-American man who is living today, who has taken over a hundred people out of the Ku Klux Klan by befriending them. Yes. And that was it. Yes. Beautiful. Yeah, and that is a bodhisattva warrior right there, right? That's, um, and it, it is, a, and, and it's, this is not something everyone can do, right? But to have the ability to meet, and this is in the ancient Buddhist text too, to meet hate with friendliness. There's a reason that's a 2,600 year old piece of wisdom and it's not safe for everyone to do. It's not possible for everyone to do, but um, examples like him are deeply inspiring. So I'm enjoying this and I'm also aware that we are probably well over time. Any final burning questions, comments, um, bits of wisdom, complaints? Thank you very much, all of you, for your kind attention and engagement in this. Appreciate it.